Welcome to the latest in our series of programs on climate change, There Is No Planet B. In this episode, presenter Marlene Halliday interviews Justin Kenrick from Extinction Rebellion, and this was recorded in week two of the COP26 conference. There Is No Planet B, episode four, Grassroots Politics Tackles Climate Change. COP26 has a few more days to run. There have been days focusing on uh, on youth, um, on land, uh, finance, um, other topics. Presidents and prime ministers have come and gone. President Obama was in Glasgow yesterday, encouraging the world's youth to keep on campaigning and fighting for their future, which indeed it is their future. Pledges have been made. Uh, some countries have allied themselves with those pledges. Others have kept their distance. Climate scientists are no doubt poring over the, the details of those pledges and plans to assess their ability to, to keep global warming down to 1.5 degrees. That was, of course, what was agreed as an aim back in 2015 in Paris. Um, agreeing that as an aim was crucial, but without action now, uh, it won't be achieved. So today we uh, were joined by Justin Kenrick. We were hoping that an associate of his, Eva Schoenfeldt, could also join it, but uh, she's working really hard with various events that are going on. She hasn't managed it. But Eva, we hope you're having a nice rest back at home. Justin is a grassroots political activist, well, both he and Eva are, something that's really important to them. They're active in Extinction Rebellion, also in heart politics, which we're going to be talking about later on. Heart Politic works in Scotland and internationally to create more assemblies and build a new grassroots to global political system. Now, that's quite an ambition. <laughs> Look hearing more about that. This week, they're running an event called Managing the Crash, and that's going to ask a question, can we bring together a grassroots-led response, the like of which we have never seen, to a threat? the like of which we've never faced. So, Justin, it's great to see you, and thanks for coming on the programme. I mean, I think last time I saw you was February last year, when, as I remember, you drove over to Indy mm-hmm. Live Studio from Edinburgh in the middle of a thunderstorm, and when you got there, we, we had a leak in the uh, studio yeah. roof, you know, but we, 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 all, we, we all managed, and uh, I'm, I'm really, really keen to hear about the heart politics and, and the managing the crash event that you're, that, that's going to happening um, this week. But before that, can you tell us... You know, what's been happening in Extinction Rebellion the last few weeks? And Fiona and I have both been in and out of Glasgow City Centre and Extinction Rebellion, very visible there. What, what, what's, been, what's been going on? Great. Well, thanks, Marlene and Fiona. Really glad to be here. Um, glad to be back, even if it's all on Zoom these days rather than, or whatever we're on, something else. Yeah, well, so I'm yeah, part of Extinction Rebellion along with many others. And uh, as you know, XR is trying to bring the crisis to public's attention. And I think it's successfully done that over the last couple of years, both here in Scotland and, and down south. When we started, I remember that the Scottish Parliament voted against a climate emergency in March, and then we had all the demonstrations and occupations in April, and then by May they declared a climate emergency. So, you know, in terms of our three demands, that first demand of speaking the truth about things has certainly mm-hmm. been happening to some degree, though I'd say one of the problems is that it's now seen as a problem we can't do anything about. So it's kind of described as a, 
a crisis that's driven by humanity and humanity's causing the crisis when humanity, our humanity isn't the problem. <laughs> it's an inhumane system that's the problem. Our humanity is the solution. So mm. there's something about the way even a really good message can get turned around to make people feel despondent and powerless. So they face the climate crisis, they go, oh my God, it's happening. I didn't want to see it. I'm now seeing it. And it's all done by us. And the us is seen as 100% of the population when of course it's not. The problem is driven by the system that is designed to exploit and appropriate. I mean, it's just designed that way. That's what profit is supposed to be being made by these companies. They're legally obliged to. They can't do anything else in a way, given how the system works. So it's designed to do exactly what we don't need. So I'd say the first demand of XR has been met in a sense in that the people are facing the emergency, but people aren't seeing what's the real cause. Um, and the second demand that we have is to take action. And of course, the Campbell oil field's likely to happen. You know, SSE is building another gas power station. There's just not the action happening. There's a lot of promises being made. And um, it's really kind of a bargaining with, you know, it's just like processing something in the future. I mean, the figures, the yeah. scientific figures are, you know, we, we've got to be reducing by about 25% a year now. You know, if we, if we just started in 2000, it would have been 3% a year. If we leave it, it'll be. So yeah, XR's, those are the basic messages, but in terms of the actions, um, yeah, there's been the really fruitful, I think the greenwashing march, I don't know if you saw that, going through, calling out the greenwashing companies, JP Morgan and SSE and so on, was I think very effective. I was part of that action that took place at the SSE, which was an interesting action. Um, yeah, there's a few arrests. Um, we were very peaceful, but the police were not so peaceful. And we've seen that quite the way through, quite a difference in police attitude. I think partly to do with mm. a lot of police being brought up from the Met yeah. and elsewhere who are then behaving yeah. in ways that they're off their patch, they feel they can do whatever they want. But yeah, I think the Greenwashing March and, and the other actions have been, been very effective in that way. Yeah, yes, yes. I was reading about the, the police action and I mean, I heard one um, activist um, just saying, well, when the lo some of the local police came over and got involved, they calmed everything down and, and it, you know, it, it went back to being a bit more of a civilised communication between the activists and the police. But uh, I was driving along the M8 south of the UN, of the Blue Zone, and I was on the M8 and I passed this, I passed this great train. I mean, it must have been about a dozen police vans. And every, yeah. I was kind of looking as I went past and I was overtaking them legally under the speed limit. <laughs> and, uh, and they were all up from Liverpool. They were all they yeah. were all had the Mersey sign. I, I I mean I did think oh well Liverpool and Glasgow. I mean if you're a policeman in Liverpool, you're probably okay as being a policeman up in Glasgow. Much the same, but that's not necessarily the case for other. Well, it doesn't other doesn't places. doesn't quite work that way. It normally means that you do take some care in your own patch, but you don't necessarily in others. You know, yeah. The hostel the, there was the battering ram being used by the Met and the Welsh police, and then they you had the police got on liaison folk came and calmed calmed the other police down. But it was pretty nasty, you know, and really threatening behaviour. And this is a hostel opened up to be able to accommodate Indigenous and other people who hadn't been able to find any accommodation coming to be at the COP. I mean, it's yeah. pr pretty appalling. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So have you been, have you yourself been um, involved in any of these uh, demonstrations and marches? I mean, are you are you happy with how, how they've gone, maybe, you know, aside from the policing part of it? Uh, yeah, I've been very involved in, in some of them. Uh, yeah, I was involved in, a, I wasn't arrested, should we put it that way? Um, <laughs> but I could well have been. Um, yeah, I mean, do you find actions are very, I mean, I should say, Peaceful, non-violent, direct action is a very empowering thing to do when you've got a very clear reason for doing what you're doing. So with SSE, who are proclaiming themselves as a great renewable future, and they are doing renewable stuff, the problem is they're still doing the gas-fired and Peterhead and so on as well. And, and so there's a real need to call out the need for change. And so when you're doing a, an action that involves quite a lot of coordination between people to peacefully occupy a space and, and bring the press's attention, which we did, I just would like to say to folks that it's a very empowering thing to do. If you're doing it yeah. peacefully, it's very empowering. And I don't think people quite realize that. They think it's a, 
well, they either think it's stupid or they think it's self-sacrificial or whatever else. But I think people don't really get just how how good it is to actually just say no to a system that is really threatening all our futures. So just want to convey that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting to hear that. I mean, it is also a bit scary to do it, to step into yeah. that space. Yeah, of course, because you're stepping over a boundary. You know, you're doing your your although you're stepping, you're staying within your morality and you're staying within your care for everybody else around you. You're stepping over a boundary that society says you should not do this. Um, but we're in a situation now where we have to step over those boundaries. If we step over those boundaries, we're going to be really crushed. So we need to step over and say this system really is not. Well, it's basically the system cannot save us from itself. I think that's the basic thing. You know, so COP26 is happening. They're all talking, as you said earlier. Presidents, you know, I remember when Obama came to Copenhagen, I was at the Copenhagen COP15 and Obama arrived when he'd just been elected. We all had great hope. Yeah. But in reality, he didn't yeah. actually seize the moment at all. Yeah. And so they talk good, the good talk, as Greta says, the blah, blah, blah. But actually, you know, without the action, it means nothing. And in a sense, I guess our argument in heart politics is maybe they can't do it. Maybe this system is just such that they are unable to act out of empathy and, and the, the real wish to challenge a system that is designed, in a sense, to exploit. I mean, that's that's how it works. So maybe yeah. we need something very different, and that, we'll maybe come on to that later. Well, at least we don't have President Trump any longer, which is a good move <laughs> for the world. President Biden seems to be trying to move forward, but you also get the sense that he's still tied up with all the politicking that goes on in Congress. Although he's, yes, but I mean, he does I, seem I, to be trying. Yeah, no, I totally agree. There's a big difference between... Politicians like Trump, who you described, who are just appalling, and then ones yeah. who are meaning well. But I don't think that Biden's able to, to do the action that's needed. Because if you think about Kerry, who's his climate change envoy, uh, John Kerry said that 50% of the emissions reductions will come from technology that doesn't yet exist. Yeah. So they're relying, I mean, in their explicit comments, they're relying on not changing business as usual. So they, they mean well, some of them, like, you know, like Biden does, I'm sure, they mean well, but they are still living in a fantasy world where we'll somehow address climate change without stopping the cause of it. And the cause of it is a capitalist system that is destroying the world. I mean, that's, it's, it's kind of physically obvious. It's not a, that's not a political statement, in a sense. That's just an analytical statement. If, you, if your system's designed to make as much profit as possible, you have to externalise your costs, and part of externalising your costs is making sure that yeah. other people suffer the consequences rather than you, and future generations yeah. are part of that. I think the youth movement has been the huge thing. XR's been there, but the last few years, I think the... The, the Fridays for the Future and Greta and, and all the school strikers here, I think they've been just extraordinary because they, they're highlighting that this is just so unjust, such an unjust situation to leave them in a world where they're going to be suffering unbelievably. Um, when we could still now, we still have the few years, very few years left, but now we have to change things utterly and transform them. It's not that step-by-step yeah. -step approach. Yes, you do see the both sides of it. You see countries like, um, you know, US now with Biden and, and uh, I mean, other countries, trying to do something but there are, are obviously other people that are you know well they're not even here i mean russia china it's a tricky one though because china is doing a lot more than america in terms of its renewables and so on so the danger with what you just said is people think that america's by being here is off the hook <laughs> okay <laughs> or, right or yeah the UK by by being here obviously we you know is, is here in the sense of johnson arriving and doing his wonderful things that we're somehow off the hook Whereas we're actually very, very responsible. Historically, uh, you know, we're responsible for the vast amount of the emissions uh, that are in the atmosphere compared to China. So, yes, they should be here. But in a way, I think that will be used by Johnson and so on as the excuse. It would have been successful over here, whereas actually Johnson's doing absolutely nothing. He's just absolutely appalling in terms of what he's doing. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I've just noticed, uh, Fiona, there's a question, a comment come in. Do you want, do you want to read that one out? What can be done about countries like Australia extracting and exporting coal for the next 30 years? 
Yes, it's it's absolutely appalling. And I mean, apparently in Australia, you pay more road tax on an electric car than you do on a petrol car because the fossil fuel lobby has such a grip on government there that means that they're you know they're being penalised by if they're trying to move towards individuals trying to move towards a less uh, carbon intense lifestyle. So I totally agree, it, it's appalling. And I think. The point is that what can be done about countries is in countries themselves. If we're talking about the global north and, and Australia, bizarrely, is in the global north because global north is a reference to power, not to geography. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and there are many people that there's a very powerful movement in Australia working really hard. But when you have Rupert Murdoch and his like controlling the press and setting the agenda for the television and the rest of it in Australia, here in the States and so on, you're up against a real brainwashing system. And actually, most people are perfectly sane when you actually go into in depth with anybody you know, with 98% of the population, they come to very sensible understandings. But when you've got this incredibly power of, of, of capital and particular people like Rupert Murdoch in control of the messaging, mm. then they can really sweep the politics before them. So yeah, you need grassroots political mobilization, which is happening in Australia mm. and happening yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. So um, just just to, to kind of move into what we've already we've mentioned a little bit about the, the you know, there's a group of indigenous um, peoples here um, at COP and at least um, to what I from what I was saying, uh, you know, I I was really pleased to to see them appearing, you know, quite frequently on TV screens, but actually also speaking there. And Justin, you yourself have got have got um ex, you know personal experience of living in of the indigenous people. Can can you tell us a bit about how you see how effective they are being as campaigners? Mm, yeah, doing great. Thanks, thanks, Martin, for asking that. Yes, I mean, the COP26 Coalition's People's Summit is happening right now. So if people wanted to, to Google that, COP26 Coalition People's Summit, there's a lot of Indigenous people's uh, sessions happening. There's one happening that I'm involved in at, uh, later on today. Um, and there's a couple tomorrow and so on, uh, which, are, which are fantastic. And they're really bringing their experience. And I guess what's so wonderful about them being here is they are saying quite simply that there are other ways of doing being human. We don't have to have this system that we've mm. developed here that we're so proud of and which is so destructive. And that, I think, is the most powerful aspect of their presence. It's not really to do with COP26, because COP26 will, is designed to continue business as usual. It has twice as many delegates from oil companies as from indigenous peoples. You know, there are 500 folk in those negotiations who are representing the interest of the fossil fuel companies. And then there are about 250 indigenous peoples representing, you know, what is it, kind of about 6%. Uh, of the world's population. So you know, the oil companies have a real stranglehold over that, this process itself. But yes, the indigenous peoples being here is really important and encouraging. It's just unbelievably strengthening for themselves, the links that they make when they come here and their links to grassroots folk here as well. I mean, they, they have, though they're only five or 6% of the world's population, 80% of the world's biodiversity is on their land. These are the people who are looking after their land. Looking, that biodiversity would have been everywhere else too, only we've destroyed it. This system's destroyed it whereas they haven't destroyed it. I mean, that just says it all, really, that 80% of the biodiversity is on their, their lands owned by 5% or not necessarily yeah. owned. And that's the problem, is that what they need is rights to their lands. That's fundamentally what their governments generally don't allow them. So they may be living as sustainably as they can, but when they don't have collective title to their lands, then their lands are under real threat from oil companies, palm oil companies, but also from conservation. Conservation sees this, what they call a pristine wilderness, and goes, oh, let's take control of that, and we can have that as our national park when actually it's not pristine wilderness it's land that people have been living in forever and taken care of forever and people belong as much as any other creature does and i think that's what they're bringing is just that real awareness that we belong that humans are not this cancer on the earth which is where we tend to go to when we uh, you know when we see the what's happening in the world 
you know, people actually belong. People have every right to be here. And, and they sh they're very good at showing those ways forward and just showing how, how well we can take care of our lands. I mean, I work with indigenous folks in Kenya in particular, um, and you know, they're, they're in real struggles because their rights to their lands aren't recognized, but they are really protecting their lands. And when the Kenya Forest Service comes in, which is the government agency, which sounds like a conservation body, Kenya Forest Service, it tends to destroy the lands. So it comes in and it creates plantations which can be quick profit uh, growing and they destroys the indigenous forests that have been there you know, forever with the people who've been mm -hmm. there forever. So yeah, my experience is these are, meeting with indigenous peoples is incredibly empowering because you realize we don't have to be doing it the way we're doing it. There are real alternatives. And that's part of what we've been exploring in Grassroots to Global, these alternatives. Yeah. How can we do politics it differently? You must be talking to some of these uh, representatives from those from those countries. I mean, what 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 are they what are they feeling? I mean, I I find it depressing enough, and well, it's not even just depressing. It's like, you know, I can feel grief struck sometimes. Yeah. You know, watching what what you see getting reported about what's happening, and and yeah. um, it's not my country. What are they feeling? What what is it you 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 hear from them? Yeah, well, no, grief's a really good word for it, Marlene. I think that is really, that, that is the word for, you know, for, for their experience or our experience if we look at what's really happening in the world. Um, I mean, one indigenous elder from uh, Yogyak in Kenya, he said to me, he was explaining to me just how attached they are to their lands and how, how much they care for their lands. And he said, you know, we're being threatened with eviction, we're being threatened with being thrown off our lands. He said, it's being thrown off our lands for us, he said, is like for you being taken away from your wife and your kids and being given a wife and kids elsewhere. It's like, you wouldn't accept that, would you? You really care about your wife and your kids. You would do anything for them. Well, that's the same for us with our land. We have that kind of depth of connection with our land. I've, that was really moving for me. It was just that real level of care and connectedness which they have. And, and I guess that's that's part of, I guess, what in, in Scotland there's been a, you know, as we all know, there's been this kind of move back towards community lands and you know, 75% of folk on the West Niles are now living on community lands, which is a big move. And there's been the, you know, the Land Reform Act 2003, and then again, you know, the, the second Land Reform Act. And there's been, you know, real opportunity to start to take back lands into community ownership. So we learn how to take care of each other collectively, rather than simply being in this kind of market system where yeah. each are out for themselves. So I think we can learn a huge amount. But as you, as you were pointing out earlier, there's huge grief because the destruction is just immense. And these companies, these palm oil companies and so on come in and just devastate and kill and bribe and I mean it's just absolutely important. I think we don't see the continuation of colonialism. It's I mean colonialism itself was so vicious. The first, you know, there were very nasty um, concentration camps in Kenya under British rule. I mean colonialism and the slave trade, I mean they say that slaves average life expectancy once they'd arrived in the Americas when the British had brought them over was like four years. I mean it just mm -hmm. It was a horrendous, but it's still, in a sense, the same system is carrying on, only it's kind of quite out of sight and it's happening on indigenous people's lands in terms of taking their lands. But the other side of that is what you pointed out earlier, which is these people know how to live. <laughs> and we need to relearn that ability to live and to know what matters. And it's not having the newest whatever. It's having deep relationships with each other and with where we are. Yes, yes. You know, as I've been listening to some of them, some of the um, uh, little interviews that have been appearing um, on, you know, on the TV with with people, you know, whose islands are disappearing or yeah. their supplies of, um, you know, supplies of water are being inundated by seawater because of, yeah. of the rising ocean level. And I mean, I know it's not the same. I'm not suggesting this is sort of comparable, but you know, I do feel, and many Scots do, but but I do feel a, a really, really strong connection of belonging to 
to the land in Scotland. So, you know, you yeah, you mentioned like more and more people um, living, you know, being able to do buyouts of private landowners and there's a big uh, land reform movement in, in mm. Scotland. And and I think a lot of a lot a lot of us do feel that sense of, you know, connection and uh, I mean sometimes I think, oh I'm just being sentimental. I'm I'm driving, you know, I'm driving somewhere through the Cairngorms or you know, over to Ardnamurchan or something, and I'm almost mm. in tears at mm. at the beauty that's there. Mm. And but it yeah. but it isn't it isn't just sentiment. It's 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 much deeper than that. And I mean, it does strike me that that you know, when you feel that for your own country, surely you can also you know feel that for for people from you know whether it's an island nation or somewhere in Africa that's you know yeah. drought struck or 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 you're a forest people and 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 the forest is being cut down uh, around you. So. Yeah. No, I think that, that connectedness to, to, to land and place is so important and it, it kind of gets pushed into a very un, unhelpful realm in our culture generally of being kind of um, exclusivist and so on, rather than it's about, you know, your connection to where you are being fundamentally what matters. I mean, obviously, Scotland has the worst land ownership in Europe. You know, it still does. It's, I mean, so the land reform act has scratched the surface of that and we need those 430 people who own half the private land in Scotland to, we need yeah. that back off them. Yeah. I mean, if you imagine yeah. what would happen, if you imagine what would happen if we just took that back, you know, what is then possible in terms of the reality for six million people if those four hundred and thirty are turned into millionaires from being billionaires? Or, you know, I, I wanted to have a campaign for millionaires to turn billionaires into millionaires. It's like you know, yeah. but, but just yeah. it's the same kind of thing. Like you know, give them give them an adequate amount of land, but then the rest come back. And there's something in grassroots of global we call it rewilding. So I know you'll know about rewilding, which is that notion yeah. of really letting nature take its course, which totally for but the rewilding is the idea that people are part of that too so and that's you know you see that when when areas in scotland are, when communities are really able to take control like on egg or elsewhere of their yeah. lands too then there's incredibly positive stuff happens both for the non-human nature and for the human nature there too and it's like there's a real need to to not look at it as a backdrop because that's trouble you know scotland you can look at the backdrop of it look at the glens and so on and think of it as nature you know that's wild or something and it's not it's all been had humans there both for good and ill, and we need to make it for good. I mean, I love that yeah. poem. You know that three-line poem? You know that one, What is a Glen? Tell it, us. It tells you the geological, ecological, and social history of Scotland in three lines. And it's a poem called What is a Glen? Water, where once there was ice. Heather, where once there were trees. Air, where once there was breath. Well, that's very, especially that last one, isn't it? Where once there was breath, because you know you you drive, and when you when you are driving around those parts of Scotland, so often you're driving past ruins. What was our little settlement? What was our thriving little settlement? And and um and and it's gone. And and yeah, we know some of the reasons and the people who who did that. But you know, leaving that aside for the moment, it is it is just heartbreaking. I was on Mull for a holiday a few years back, two or three years back, and um, went for a walk that took me over to one of those um, villages and. You know the actual houses that they lived in were <laughs> the the walls were all there really. I mean they hadn't been yeah. lived in for over a hundred years, well over a yeah. hundred years. The yeah. the walls were so well built and yeah. so yeah. built in a way that was in tune with the climate and the the yeah. weather and yeah. and uh, what the people themselves needed. And it was yeah. so easy to sit. And you know you could think, well, there's a little street, and then there's another little street comes down here, and and, yeah, yeah. and there's nothing except grass. A grass. Well, try, I mean, but try somewhere like Scarabray on Orkney. You know, then that is like thousands. That's before pyramids. Yeah. That's before yeah. Great World Transport. Yeah. Anything. And it's yeah. and then you yeah. look at it, and it's just this little place where people lived, and you go, 
Wow. wow. I mean, for me, it's better. Yeah. It beats all these cathedrals because it's like just ordinary life. And the fact that we have always been able to, we had um, nine Mexicans staying with us, which was quite crowded a few nights back. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and they were talking, these were indigenous people from Chiapas, Zapatista, uh, well, seven Zapatista women. And they were, I mean, what was lovely is they were saying all of that is recoverable. Like it's not gone. It's, I mean, it, in lots of places it's gone, but it just takes getting back on the land, being yeah. there and listening to the land and you learn what that land needs and you learn what you need in relationship to it. It needs to be done with respect and with awareness of the ancestors and what's happened before is what they were talking about. You know, you don't just land yourself there and thinking, right, I'm doing what I'm doing. You want to learn the history. You want to learn the songs. You want to learn the stories and everything, you know, which are mostly there are fragments of that. But out of fragments, you can weave weave a whole web you know the whole the whole thing can come back and i thought that was really lovely but the other point we're seeing a, a, a comment in uh, here that's talking about a lot of scots families being cleared off their land and those clearances were what fueled the british empire you know the enclosures in england the clearances in scotland were what fueled the yeah. ability of this system to then throw people off their lands in canada in africa in australia and elsewhere scotland's been both a victim and then been people have been forced to become part of the same process elsewhere and i know when i talk with folk in africa about that, they're amazed because they have always thought of Europe as being the place that dominates. They didn't realize the folk that I talked with, indigenous people, didn't realize that it happened to us here. Mm-hmm. You know, so and that's incredibly empowering for them to realize, oh, you're not made like that. That's been done to you like it's being done to us. And so there's something about us all collectively realizing we're all victims of this system. And if you, you know, even these kind of the people who are at the top of it, those 465 landowners, people who go to private schools, I've just learned that in Edinburgh it's 24 percent of kids. Go to yeah. private schools. Twenty-four. I mean, it's four percent nationally. Sorry, yeah. I, I live in Edinburgh, right? So I'm just, yeah. I'm just, I'm, you know, my kids always go to go to state school here. Just like, what? The, but that system is designed to cut you off from your empathy. You know, that's what when we're looking at heart politics, we're looking at how it's not just the people who are suffering at the bottom, but actually the people who are trained to be at the top are trained out of their empathy, are trained out of their ability to be human. So in a way, we need to rescue them too. So, and that's where we see the big shift happening. Not, not that we focus on them, they, you know, but just to be aware that they aren't powerful people. They're incredibly powerless. They're unable to empathize. They're unable to have any sympathy. They're unable to feel in that way. And to different degrees and at different moments, obviously. But there's fundamentally a, a process of education that happens that cuts them off from their ability to care. And that is really cutting yourself off from your humanity. So there's something about rescuing all of us from this. So it's not just the 99%, you know, which <laughs> obviously that's who you need to really fight for. But there's also the 1% that you need to help them by taking their wealth away from them. They're not helped by being shored up by their castles and the rest of it. They're really cut off. And I was hearing a story from one of the Glens two weeks ago, and it was very sad hearing a Glaswegian couple who'd, who'd moved up there. Fantastic, <laughs> a really fantastic couple who'd just like had their feet on the ground totally, but were describing how the person who they, who's their laird, well, just basically describing this person in the way that she was unable to keep her empathy or really empathize with anybody. And you could just hear it was in her training. And they were able to really empathize with her and she was completely unable to empathize with them. And it was just like, wow, that sums it up. We're in a system where you get to the top if you don't have empathy. You get to the top if you're exploiting, you get to the top if you're destroying, which is why we say the system is, is over. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's the sunset of the system. It, it can't save us from itself. Yes, yes. And indeed, this reminds me of a sailing holiday I was on and we were sailing past um, one of the smaller islands off the west side of Mull. And um, it had been... You know, it always had settlements on it, but I mean, way back, and then it didn't. There was always a couple of houses there, um, but people would go on and off the island, and folk would sometimes take their, their sheep over or even their cattle, and then someone bought it, and they immediately clamped down on what they referred to as trespassing. Now, there is no trespassing law in 
in Scotland. Uh, they weren't Scottish yeah, yeah. themselves. Yeah. They were from elsewhere. We don't need to know where. I mean, the locals thought it was almost like it was a joke to begin with. Then they realised it was very much not a joke because yeah. people who'd bought it were bringing the police in into it, not that the police wanted to be involved at all. And in the end, it was local people who just took it upon themselves to every so often they'd they'd land en masse at somewhere mm. on the island mm. and they'd go for, they just went for a walk. <laughs> they just went for a walk. And if they saw anyone in the big house, you know, the big house, they would say hello. And, you know, and they, they just did it. And I mean, yeah. I don't, I don't know that they ever really kind of overturned the thinking that was behind that, you know, mm. so you're not trespassing on our island, mm. but they did, but they, they did do something that at least empowered them. It's, it's amazing that going for a walk and saying hello is subversive in a domination system. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, that's yeah. like just, just, I mean, think about indigenous territories that I've been on. And if you're going for a walk and you're saying hello, it'll be a long hello, just like it will yeah. be on egg or anywhere else. It's like, yeah. you know, that yeah. hello doesn't, isn't a short hello. It's like, you know, there's a whole long, and that's subversive in an inhumane system. That's a subversive thing to be human. And that's that's kind of moved us over to um, you know kind of grassroots grassroots actions and oh well, that's just brought to mind another poem and I'm not going to be able to remember all of it but it's one by the current Mac Scots Macker Kathleen Jamie it's actually inscribed round the monument at Bannockburn but one of the one of the lines that's just what came into my mind is we are but small folk playing our part talking to you I sort of feel that actually that's where you're seeing maybe a way out of the awful mess that, that, that yeah. humanity's got itself in. Absolutely. And to realise that we're all small folk playing our part and there is no big folk apart from big folk not playing their part. You know, so how do we all learn to be small folk? It's not that we need big leaders, which is what we tend to get told in political contexts, including by kind of radical political parties too. We don't need leaders that way. We need to all be able to play our part. I, I mean, I guess I got that partly from, I think I told you back in February when I was on with you before, about the Climate Citizens Assembly that I was involved with, you know, the Scottish, Scottish one. And my experience there was when I was in small working groups with, let me say, politicians who I don't agree with, who are on the very other end of the spectrum to where I am. Uh, even they would make sense when they were in the small groups not having to defend their position, but just right. thinking about their families. So it was just something about how can we all become small folk, even those who think they're powerful, and actually consider the things that really matter rather than consider prestige and importance so um, yes yes um, and actually uh, fiona has just rescued me because she's got the poem in front of her <laughs> fiona please rescue me read it out here lies our land every ert beneath swift clouds glad glints of sun belonging to none but itself we are mere transients who sing its westling winds and ferny braes northern lights and siller tides small folk playing our part Come all ye, the country says, you win me, who takes me most to heart. Beautiful, absolutely mm -hmm. beautiful. And there's also um, another one from Hashbury Stumble saying that there was a very good presentation from Ted at COP26 about carbon sequestered in soil and trees. This is one of the big issues is that five billion are being promised towards forest protection. But if that's used, as it will be, if it's billions, if it's used by large governments and organizations, they'll use it to take land from the people who've been taking care of those trees and those forests. So, yeah, of course, carbon sequestration in Scotland and abroad is absolutely crucial, totally. And, we, I mean, our soils are being washed into the sea by our form of agriculture, you know. So, actually, the soil replenishing and that being able to draw down and take, take carbon, absolutely really good ways through if we go for them. But the ways they're likely to go for them are 
not actually changing our agriculture here, you know, in America and in Europe and so on, but saying we'll grab their trees and their forests over there. And then that's just destruction because you have guys with guns protecting something supposedly when they're only interested in their guns and their, their wage, as opposed to it being people who really deeply care. You had a question for that? About... The other question might, might be a tricky one for us okay. to answer is, okay. when will Scotland be free of London's rule? Well, I think that, no, that's a really good question because to me that's kind of, it's where do you start with that? And I guess where we're starting with that grassroots to global is let's start in our communities and where we are. But always wishing for something to happen over there. I mean, it's great. You know, if we'd succeeded in 2014, that would have been fantastic. If we succeed whenever next, that's fantastic. But in the meantime, there's no point kind of just, uh, you know, hanging on, waiting for that to somehow happen when actually what we need to do is reclaim our freedom now. So how do we do that where we live? And so that's why we're advocating people's assemblies in our communities. And we're involved in one up in Torrey in Aberdeen, uh, where you know, friends who are in Grassroots to Global were involved in helping set that up to resist Ian Wood and the others taking over community lands, you know, in the city in Aberdeen, but taking over community lands to turn it into a so-called transition zone. In fact, Ian Wood describes that as a kind of context where you can continue extracting oil and gas and continue with a few renewables on the side. It's a really appalling greenwashing happening all over the place. So what you need are people taking back control and decision-making over their own lands and their own resources. And that's what we're advocating, basically. So yes, of course, keep a focus on London and keep a focus on on independence, that's absolutely vital over the longer term. If it's the kind of independence which is about reclaiming ourselves from colonization and from be having been part of colonization, so not pretending we were just the victims, but we all got caught yeah. up in that process. Yeah. So if it's yeah. done in a conscious way, which it, 2014 was wonderful in terms of just the kind of the awareness people wanted to bring to, their, to the liberation, as it were, it was one that was really deep and profound. And if we carry on in the same vein, then we'll get there. But you can't wait, you need to get on with it now. So that's my response is don't, don't wait for that. Actually, look at how do we free ourselves to be making decisions where we live. And of course, we're all conditioned to, to not. I mean, community councils are the lowest form of governance and they do nothing. They're almost designed. They have no power. So they're designed to take people's worries and then they can do nothing with them. <laughs> you know, they're like a so the lowest form of governance. And then the next one up is Scotland, again, has kind of like the largest areas in, in Europe. You know, it doesn't have, as Leslie Riddick and others have been, and Andy Whiteman have been pointing out for ages, it just doesn't have that kind of local governance structure that places like Norway have. So there's something about pushing from the ground is what we need to do to actually create the assemblies where we make decisions for ourselves. And obviously we'll come up against power then and you have to then work out what you do and then connect nationally over that. And that's what we're looking at is how do we develop local assemblies that are not focused on independence or climate change or any of these things that the rest of us are passionate about, but are focused on how do we make life good for people here and now? What do we need to stop happening that's making things worse? And then build from that towards a national assembly process, which then thinks, okay, how do we reshape the structure of our politics so that it actually reflects people's needs rather than reflects party positioning and so on. Yeah, and that's yeah. a very different, I mean, it's a different kind of independence. It's coming from the ground up and it, it, you end up in the same place in terms of places like Scotland being independent, obviously, but you're not starting with that as your, the be all and end all. It's like, well, you need that to be really substantial. That independence needs to be meaningful rather than not. That, that's, a, that's a description of, of, of what you were mentioned before, um, this um, organisation or that's called heart politics. I think it's what you refer yeah. to, to it. And, 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 that, and that's also connected with the grassroots to global organization, isn't it? So tell, tell us a bit about how you've got involved with, with them. Well, I mean, the heart politics was kind of began with myself and Eva just going, how do we do politics differently? And, and what's missing from politics seems to be that when people get to positions of power, however well-meaning they are, they feel trapped by the system that's there. So that they basically, they're always choosing the lesser of two evils, which means that you're always choosing evil. So how do you not choose lesser of two evils? How do you actually create a system where 
you can bring your heart to it. So you can be a full human being and you can make mistakes and you don't then get get kind of pilloried for it. You learn from your mistakes and you just you bring your feeling and your empathy to the process rather than putting that in a box so that you end fight your corner in an aggressive way, which is how our politics is designed. So however well-meaning and however much you agree with somebody, when they're in that political arena, they're having to fight their corner rather than actually be there with their heart, open-heartedly reflecting on the issue. Mm. So this comes then, we, we develop, so Grassroots to Global is, which is grassroots, so then the number two and then global.org, um, is, is looking at connecting with other assembly processes elsewhere in the world. And we had a great week in May, which we call the re rewilding, meeting with people from all over the world. I mean, Chile, for example, had an amazing assembly process where, again, grassroots assemblies all over because there was, there was you know, it was a very neoliberal country and uh, it began with students, again, the youth leading the way, but students reacting to the train fares on the Santiago tubes trains being put up astronomically. So they started jumping the barriers. And then from that, you had kind of demonstrations, you had assemblies, you had people objecting to the water privatization, the, all of that, all across the country. And out of that process, you ended up having a, a national uh, assembly process and the government of the day had to agree to a referendum on whether they wanted a new constitution and they won that. And then they had a referendum on who would be part of the assembly that would form the new constitution. And, and actually they had a gender balancing part of that to make sure it's 50-50 and mostly it was women being voted in. So they had to bring the number of women down, which is a real tragedy, I think. They should have, <laughs> just said it. They should have said it should be at least 50% women rather than, you know, to, to write yeah. the balance. Over time. It's always been the other way around. So most people being elected to that were independents. So you had a lot of, the right was very small, the left was quite large, but then you had loads of people coming in and they weren't independents in that kind of conservative sense that there often can be. They were independents as in coming through people's assemblies, trusted people that people knew were really cared. And they're the people who are in there writing the new constitution. So we had those folk there at the assembly and at the rewilding gathering in, in May. And we had folk from all over the world. And basically what we were hearing is there's a really normal way of doing politics, which is that you get together and you talk with each other about what's needed. That's it. And you take as long as you need to take. And it's not a party system. It's a system where people are really deeply listened to. And my experience of that in Kenya is that when you have a clash, so I'm thinking about a particular community where some people wanted to exploit the timber and others wanted to protect their indigenous forests. And when you started off the conversation, it's about a thousand people in a gathering. When you start off the conversation, it's about 50-50 really. Um, and that's because you have men of my age being the dominant ones who want to be able to grab their timber and run. But if, it take, if you have enough time and you make enough space for people, then gradually it shifts and then the women start speaking and the older women in particular, and they, they're very, very strong. And in the end, it's kind of like 98% for protecting the lands and 2% for ripping it off. And that's where you tend to end up. So you don't end up with a 52-48 or a 55-45 or a 51-49. You end up with the vast majority. And you see that with systems assembly processes, is that you end up with, you know, in the Scottish Climate Assembly process, for example, you had over 70%, over 80%, over 90% for motions. Because once you've deeply considered what really matters yeah. and stopped being played around with by politicians, then you generally, there's a pretty straightforward way through, maybe a hard way through, but there's a realistic way through. So that's where we were getting to with that rewilding process, was just learning that actually these assembly processes are what people, what humans naturally do and what we need to do. Yes, happen. yes. I mean, when I um, had a look on the a Grassroots to Global website earlier, and I think it's a very intriguing diagram, well, image on it. I think it's what, what you've been referring to. It, it, it looks like an eye, doesn't it? When you kind of, from a distance, it just looks like an eye. And is it the idea that, you know, conversations start at certain certain kind of individuals or groups and, and then locally and then you could that can that can move into you know looking moving inwards in that that diagram it can move into a, 
a, a national people's assembly and then an international one and and then you've got a global citizens assembly i mean that is some ambition justin well it's a tricky one so yes you've, you've caught it absolutely right so in the middle of there is the world upside down and you, and the idea is that you're moving in from the outside as you say marlene from conversations across difference through people's assemblies to a global assembly i mean there has actually been a global citizen assembly at this cop just now but it was and we were part of kicking that off back in March 20, whichever year it was, 19 or 2020. But that became quite quickly kind of captured. So they did some really interesting work. But what, we, what we're saying is we need something that arises from the people and that isn't appointed from above. And that's basically what this is about, is how do you arise? How do you take care of each other? And you start off by having conversations across difference in your locality, in your area. So you're not just bringing people together who you know and agree with, but people you disagree with. And you're learning where your commonality is, where your, where your care. Mm. And consideration can be and you're learning and you're also learning how to talk with each other and how to listen and how to empathize rather than just get into factions and get into you know i mean neighbors can be the worst people can't they because when you don't get on you know they're not <laughs> in your family so you can't shout at each other you know in your family you can just have a, have a you know or if it's at work you can always leave and get a different job but your neighbors are people who are there aren't they you know and i get on with my neighbors it's fine but i'm just saying that's the area where the most that's in our society because we don't have spaces for that coming together you know i mean obviously pubs and so on but places where you where you kind of manage different so we're looking at how do we support people to be able to have difficult conversations out of their bubble in a real way and that's that's really what we're looking at helping to happen and that's what you know happening up in Aberdeen or happening here in Edinburgh in, in Glasgow too but the, our ambition I guess for this is just like how can that then move towards something that's national too so how could you end up with a, an assembly in Scotland that's actually really looking at the issues and that's partly where this uh, event on Thursday that we're holding in Glasgow mm. at, at this institution government is happening. That's just a very first step. It's going to be a very small gathering of folk looking at how do we in Scotland, just thinking about Scotland, how do we how do we manage the inevitable crash we're going to have? If we can bring that crash on sooner, if we can actually crash our economy sooner, but in a way that enables everybody to be well, enables everybody to be healthy, fed, watered, you know, warm. You know, how do we how do we transform this economy in a way that can really take care of people? Because that's in a sense what politics should be about, is about enabling people to meet their needs, enable people to be reassured, to be able to be safe. Be able to be secure, uh, to be able to be, have a, have a good life. So that's kind of kind of step in that in that direction for us is is this managing the crash um, process of looking at well how do we actually do that? What kind of future do we need where we're not reliant on a system that's destroying our future? What kind of economic system do we need? How do we how do we meet each other's needs? So we're, we're going to start off on on Thursday by actually envisaging what that future is like, enabling ourselves to. Kind of step step into our imaginations and really envision. Well, how would that world be? How would it be to be living in a world where my well-being depends on your well-being, rather than my well-being being seen as depending on exploiting other people in other parts of the world? How would we really take care? And how would we not be as Scotland taking stuff from elsewhere in the world or dumping stuff elsewhere in the world? How would we take care in a way that really was uh, taking care of our lands and enabling others elsewhere to take care of their lands too? So we're looking at kind of na looking nationally in that sense as well as locally. But we're also, as you mentioned earlier, linking up globally with assembly processes elsewhere, because we're going to have to do this as a world. I mean, we're facing a crisis, the like of which we've never seen before, and we need to be able to meet it in a way that we've never been able to meet it before. And as we're seeing it in a kind of heart politics perspective is that requires us really deepening into our empathy and being able to be really compassionate and being able to be really caring. So we don't need a revolution that's a triumph of some people over others. It's got to be one that's actually really just stopping the bulldozer that's trampling our worlds and in a sense liberating those who are driving that bulldozer who think they're sitting above us and doing so well when they're cut off from their humanity. Hearing about that, I mentioned to Yeller, I've, I've signed up for this scent on Thursday, managing the crash. Now, 
you can give the details of it um, before we finish in case anyone um, uh, wants to find out more. And it's interesting hearing you talk about it in terms of like well-being and, you know, not just for us, but for the um, people all over the world. So does it encourage you that there is, certainly not in all countries, but in, in some places, in some governments, are now turning to look at well-being economics a well-being society, you know, a society that's socially just, fair. And I know it's easy, and people do sort of dismiss that as being mere words. Obviously, it's it's actions that's um, that's important. But there are governments who uh, who have quite publicly said that that is what they're trying to do. I mean, New Zealand comes to mind, but the Scottish government's trying to do what they what they can. I think Iceland as well, possibly Norway. Um, th- does that like, encourage you that? Um, something is maybe shifting at a government level? Or from your point of view, is it always going to only happen because there's pressure from the bottom up? Well, yeah, so Scotland, Iceland, New Zealand, I think Costa Rica now too, um, part of that wellbeing alliance approach. I mean, people either tend to, to believe governments when they do that, or they say it's just hypocrisy. I mean, yeah. I have a different theory of change, which is what I call the hypocrisy theory of change. You, get, you try and get the powerful to say what they don't quite mean, and then you hold them to it. So I think government saying things like that are important. I don't think it's a small thing. I think it's a very big thing. It, it shows they know the direction of travel. So some people in there will believe it in those governments. Some people will be just saying it. But it shows the direction of travel that's happening. So I am really heartened by that. And the work of Catherine Trebek and the other you know, Wellbeing Alliance folk yeah. are doing great work. And it's really good. And, and um, But <laughs> it, it doesn't become real without that push from below. So, But it's the interaction between those two that's important. So it's not just that I'm focused on the push from below. But that's not the only thing that matters. And then others are focused on trying to get small shifts happening in that way within the kind of government uh, rhetoric or government plans and so on. And that's also really important. And then the interaction between the two is what's really critical. So that you have an opening of space within the government system and then you have a pushing through happening um, from, from below. So I'm not, that's not, not where my focus is, but I, I think it's really silly to either believe governments when they say that because they're still caught in a system that doesn't allow them to do that. If you look at the government, Scottish government's, well-being flower it has a nice little flower showing how well-being is central and then in the middle is economic growth so it's still got this same driver which is the problem because economic growth is pointless it's yeah. just about getting more money or getting more profit or whatever else you know by itself you can have growth of well-being and have growth of all sorts of things that's great but to have growth as your measurement which is what the well-being folks say is crazy so you know it's a problem in that they have a nice veneer and then they have this thing right at the center but now there's having taken on that language of well-being of well-being is really important so no i wouldn't Hypocrisy, you use hypocrisy. You don't dismiss it or believe it. You use it. Use it well. Um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. Use hypocrisy well. Then we should take responsibility rather than yeah. either believing yeah. them or saying they're nonsense. It's like, well, what do we do with it? What are we going to do? So, so from the ground up, it's like we need to do that with democracy. We need to say, well, yes, we totally believe in democracy and the system we've got. Though, obviously, the voting system in Scotland is way better than the voting system in the UK. It's still... A voting system where parties are fighting each other rather than an assembly system yeah. where you're really encouraging people to step yeah. forward and take responsibility which is what we're what we're looking at yeah yeah i think there's a question that maybe uh, links up with that fiona the one about bubbles there's two interesting ones link that link with what you're saying first is it's very difficult to get out of your own bubble to have conversations with people who disagree with you, which I think is the point you were making earlier. Yes. And there's also uh, somebody who's very passionate about veganism and says that you cannot be a climate activist unless you're first vegan. And the first thing you should ask any activist is whether they're vegan. And if they say no, then they are a hypocrite. So talking about using hypocrisy, I'm interested in how that person would use hypocrisy in that context. So 
you know, because again, the danger is to say to somebody, well, you're a hypocrite, so you're, what you're doing is meaningless, rather than, so if you are a vegan and you think that's the most crucial step to take, which this person clearly does, that's fine. But then how would you then, you know, interact with somebody who said they're not? Would you just dismiss them yeah. and therefore you can't work with them? Or would you say, well, that's fine, when obviously that person is not fine? So it's, it's just that question, how do you engage? How do you encourage? How do you bring people over to your side rather than alienate them or hold them up as the great and the good and they've already done it because you know they may well be vegan but they may well be doing all sorts of other things that are hypocritical too so we're all caught in that place of being hypocritical because we're in a system so the danger is thinking that it's the individual change what that person's describing is really important collectively we need to make a shift and the system is the problem when you when you end up we're taught to blame individuals and focus on individual behavior and though our behavior really does matter we are trained by the system to only focus on that to think the paper cups are what matter or the plastic bags are what matter us individual actions on that when actually the system itself changing what's possible and changing the way in the way in which our agriculture happens and so on is absolutely vital and then you can have discussions about whether you think it's okay to have a few cows on you know on an island on the west coast of scotland if you know in that situation is that fine you can go and talk with people there you can then bring your vegan approach to that and see what's happening and, and they listen to those people but don't if actually the real argument is with an industry that's destroying our world, then let's not divide from each other when we're mm. fighting that. But let's have real, honest, difficult conversations, but have it in a way that respect encourages rather than says, I'm right and you're wrong, full stop. There's a system that is wrong, full stop. We individuals aren't full, wrong, full stop. Yes, and and, I mean, and that, that sort of brings to mind something. I, again, I saw it on the, the Grassroots to Global website about we can't solve our crises using the same way of thinking that created them. If you carry on doing the same thing, you'll carry on getting the same results. Absolutely, yeah. So and fundamentally, we need a politics that has the heart in it, that actually has empathy in it and has care. And that's not just politics. Out there, it's how we engage with each other around the issues that matter to us. So how do we really engage in a way that does bring folk over and doesn't alienate them? But I say that as an XR activist who is very happy to lock on something and block the traffic and, you know, whatever else. And I've been arrested <laughs> and, you know, been fined for all that sort of stuff. So I'm not in any way saying that we shouldn't be very confrontational. And ourselves in situations where we have very difficult conversations so being in your heart and being empathic is not about not putting yourself in difficult places mm. and not being in situations of confrontation it's just that when you're in those it's relating to people as as human beings who can understand you i mean i had a group of about 10 police i remember down in london for one of our we, we went down from a whole bunch of us from scotland went down and took over part of parliament square in london back in april 2019 and a very effective blocking of the streets there and i was held by police in one of the police stations near there and end up hours waiting to get into the get into the process to get into the cells. And I had about 12 of them. I had a good tutorial with 12 of them. It was great. I mean, they, they'd happened to all watch David Attenborough's film that had come out the night before on, on the climate. So guys there that were used to being climate deniers were clearly really thrown because somebody that they thought of as one of them, David Attenborough, was suddenly saying, this is real, guys. So it was a good moment to see. So yeah, learning to talk with people who are very different to you and being willing to enter the different conversations is definitely... Yes, 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 and 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 I noticed that um, that uh, image that we had up earlier um, from Grassroots to Global on on the outer the outer sort of um, section of it, it was it was about listening, and then and then maybe having a meeting. Now that could be a that could be a meeting, you know, person to person or through technology the way we're doing it this afternoon. Mm -hmm. But actually, what it brought to me was, but if you listen to someone you're more likely to be able to have a meeting with their heart or, or put themselves in their yeah. shoes. I mean, I, I had a friend who who used the phrase of, in a difficult situation, whether it's a personal one or a work-related one or, you know, whatever, that the phrase she used was that she'd try and put herself on their mountain. 
And, and there was, there's nothing wrong with being on a mountain and you knew where you were and you knew what you thought and you had views about you know how, how things should proceed and who was right and who was wrong. And she was just saying, well, we all have that mountain. And the trick, though, to be able to, if you just stick on your own mountain, you, you, you really don't, you don't, you don't really connect with each other. If you yeah. could manage to get yourself onto their mountain, yeah. understand it and be able to see, I think the important, as I remember, the important thing was you're able to see the view from their mountain, which mm. is very different from the view Lovely. from maybe my mountain, because my mountain comes with all the things that have happened in my life. Their mountain mm. comes mm. with other things. And, and uh, I was in a particular group at the time, and she was using this in a workshop. And I mean, I must admit, to begin with, I, I was going, oh, I don't think, oh, no, do we have to do this? Anyway, we did have to do it, and it was really good that we had to do it because when you do that with someone, you really try that with someone, actually, it's just amazing what you suddenly go, oh, that's what you see. Oh, yes, of course, you, of mm. course you see it like that. So there, there's lots of, um, it, lots it, it of ways in which you can help, you know, be able to listen and meet, isn't there? I think you've just summed it all up really there, Mike. Absolutely. And, and there's just something about suddenly realising that other people are real, that they are as real as you are that you're not the only person in the world, that these people are seeing the world differently and experiencing it differently, and that's an amazing thing rather than a threatening thing. And we're kind of trained to think of difference as a threat and that other people are somehow we're competing with them. That's The system trains us that way. But to realize that other people are amazing opportunity to be able to see the world differently and to be able to, as you say, put yourself in their shoes. And, and it's just amazing. You're not alone. There's other people yeah. who care. And I think that's yeah. what came through the COVID period. I mean, there was lots awful, but that early lockdown period was, because we did these interviews with people across Scotland, around experience of COVID. And one thing that came through was just people's awareness of other people caring, just how deeply people cared. And we're trained to think that everybody's out to get you and get so, but that's not who we really are. We're deeply caring beings. And that, that created a kind of pause, that COVID period, that, you know, in some ways, to realise that actually that care is what matters. And, and the people doing the ordinary work are what matters, not the people up the top. You, know, you, you suddenly realise what you really depend on uh, rather than what you're told you depend on. And yeah, we depend yeah. on each other. And, yeah. and the differences are what really enrich us rather than a, a threat. Indeed, us. indeed. So, way it's a shame to stop talking to you, Justin, because um, it's so such an enjoyable experience. But I think we bring it to a, a close there. But before we do, can you just um, give people the information that they might need if they're interested in the event that yeah, on Thursday? So, yeah, the event on Thursday. Well, it's called managing the crash, and actually just put an article up on Bella Caledonia on that. So that'd be one way of getting to it. I expect people listening to this may well know Bella Caledonia and therefore would fi find that an easy route through. Otherwise, they could go to grassrootstoglobal.org, grassroots and then the number two global.org, or look at the Govern Free State website. And if you looked at that one, Govern, <laughs> have you seen that? No, I haven't seen that. Actually. Oh, I was looking at that you one. Have, you should have them on. I mean, that's Gal Gale and the Centre for Human Ecology and the Pierce Institute. They've got the Govern Free State. They've got their own passports where you declare yourself as belonging wherever you're from. It's a lovely, oh, right. a really lovely oh, project. Oh, definitely, definitely. Oh, we might have to try and get them on. So it's over get in Govan, here in Glasgow. Yeah. It's in Govan. It's the Pierce it's Institute. In yeah. yeah, and it's person to person and uh, lunches, lunches yeah, and provided. And, you know, you very generously set it up to be to be free for so anyone can 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 go you don't have to pay to come up with cash to, to do it although obviously um if people can give a bit of a donation that's that's always a help isn't it not the crucial thing is people that's not it. the crucial that's not the crucial thing thank you it's it's at the pierce institute in govern this thursday the 11th of november 10 o'clock until 4 30. it's an all-day workshop it's free you're all welcome do register so we know know who's coming that's great. brilliant 
So we've come to we've come to the end of another another episode of uh, There's No Planet B for uh, Independence Live. We hope you've en enjoyed this one. We certainly appreciated getting comments from those of you who who sent them in, and we'll be recording some more uh, next week. We've got an interview set up with a Buddhist who's written a book about helping solve the, the, the climate crisis, not so much from the point of view of um, you know, science or actions, but from the point of view of your, your own in, you know, internal landscape and what you feel about it, how to take the most from and what's positive there. And we've also got an interview with a climate activist who is based in Australia. So the person who was asking about Australia and still carrying on you know, with its mining the activist we're going to be talking to has uh, has actually he's been standing outside the gates of some of these big coal mines along with um, other people and they're all they're from all sorts of different faith groups so that's that's coming up um, if not next week then then the week later so in in the meantime we'll just uh, say goodbye and again yeah hope you've enjoyed it that was episode four of there is no planet b grassroots tackling the climate change. If you'd like to watch the video version of this, it's on Indie Live Radio's YouTube channel. It was presented by Marlene Halliday and the podcast version was produced and edited by Fiona McGregor. Music was by Scott Buckley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>